26, verse 57 to 68. Um, and this is in page 833 in your pew Bibles. Page 833 in your pew Bibles. Just as a reminder, uh, this is uh, Jesus now being dragged by uh, the mob to the presence of the high priest. And we are going to see now uh, what does that mean and how did they um, proceed with this trial. And it's a very interesting portion, as you will see. Anyhow, please stand to hear the preaching of, uh, the, excuse me, the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Verse 57, this is God's word. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priests stood, stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This is indeed God's holy word. Now, congregation of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, if you have paid attention how uh, storytelling goes, you will realize that Every story, no matter which or no matter what story, consists in a series of four steps, really basic elements. First, you have the beginning of the story, right? That tells you about the normal circumstances of a character. Then you will see that the character is clashing against an inconvenience, a quest, a mission, or something similar. Uh, and thirdly, then you see the climax, when this character of the story comes to the uh, to the to clashing with his quest and then fulfill fulfills the quest and then fourthly you see the success of this quest where the character has finally made it and then the story goes back to the beginning everything is normal once again so you have one two three climax and then ending and everything is normal now in the 80s however uh, Griders discovered that normal storytelling what I just described for you it's boring and it's predictive. And so they introduce the concept of anti-climax. Anti uh, this is no other than an unexpected circumstance inside the story that changes everything. It's something that you can't imagine. 
like for example Superman being shot in the chest with a kryptonite bullet, dying and leaving Lex Luthor as the winner. Sorry, Ron. Just in this same way, uh, the disciples didn't see Jesus Christ being arrested. They didn't see that coming, despite all the warnings. And for them, it's unexpected, it's anticlimactic. And now, as, as, the, as the night passes over and progresses, the king will go under trial. And that's the theme of my sermon this morning, the king under trial. And that is something unthinkable, excuse me, for the disciples thus far. And so we will explore this anticlimactic uh, narrative in two parts. First, the accusations against the king. And second, the humiliation of the king. So first, the accusation against the king. And second, the humiliation of the king. Now, let us open the text once again with the first point, the accusations against the king. And I want you not to forget, congregation of the Lord, that all the disciples, every single one of them, had fled in the previous verses. And this, too, is anticlimactic. Because one would think, after all, that uh, loyalty and friendship will conquer in the end. That, that this is a good story where goodness triumphs. But the, the gospel story is not about loyalty. It's not about friendship. Not, at least not coming from us. It's about the King Jesus coming to us, becoming flesh in order to die for our sins. And so in that sense, it's about his loyalty. It's about his friendship with us until the end when we have failed. And so verse 57 describes what is happening next. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now, I want you to pay attention to that, brothers and sisters. The king is not led, the king is not led to a house of justice, nor is he led to the place where the authorities in those times made their deliberations. Actually, the king is led to the house of the high priest. And we immediately get the idea, not only from Jesus' words in the past, uh, but for the situation and how it's handled, that everything in here, everything that is percolating right now, smells fishy, does it not? That there is no justice in view here. The house of Caiaphas is not the place for an audience or a trial. And the meeting of the elders in the middle of the night, the elders and the scribes, is certainly a hurried one. There is no process behind. And in addition to that, everything is done in the secrecy. This is not a public audience. So we already can start to form the impression that nothing good is coming out from this gathering. This is an injustice. Now, let me ask you, have you suffered injustices, brothers and sisters, boys and girls? Have you ever been treated unfairly? Have you seen yourself abandoned with no friends around you? Because Jesus, he understands that, and he understands you. And just as he does, he can also bring comfort to your weary soul. So when you feel alone, when your mind goes to dark places, do not put your eyes in your circumstances. Rather, go to Jesus, because he understands you. He can bring comfort to your soul. But also remember, Jesus endured this tribulation, this solitude and injustice for a deeper reason. 
and that is to obey the Father and to rescue his people from our sins and condemnation. We deserve that, and Jesus is here enduring all of that for us. Because we all suffer injustices, do we not? But only one suffer injustices without being unrighteous, Jesus Christ. He was free from all unrighteousness and from all guilt. The crimes against him are the most egregious that he has suffered so far and that the world has seen in the whole of history. In any case, now look uh, how Matthew introduces an spectator into the story, into the text, verse 58. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And the way Matthew tells this uh, uh, story uh, makes it sound like it is curiosity what drives Peter more than anything else. More, more than anything else. What is going on in his head? Have you thought about that? What is going on in his head? What is it that he's holding on to right now? Uh, why is he so attracted to the Messiah, so much so that he has to follow him, even though he's doing so at the distance? And, and isn't it true in that sense that we too can feel uh, similar to Peter, that we can sympathize with Peter? Because it will be very easy, would it not, to uh, choose the high ground and then condemn Peter, affirm that we would have done better, but that we will never have betrayed Jesus. Certainly, we could have done that. But in the heart of our hearts, we know, do we not, that we too have fled from Jesus many times, that we too many times have followed Jesus from the distance. We all know what it is to lose the power of our convictions, to feel like the fire in us has been extinguished, to fear man and not God. But despite all of that, we still feel attracted to Jesus. So we follow him from the distance. We cool down, but we are not entirely quenched. We look from the distance. We stop coming to church as often as we did. Or maybe we find someone el somewhere else where we can hide. And yet, we still cannot shake Jesus out of our hearts. We have to follow him. We have to figure him out. There is still some attraction, some certain call in our consciences and in our hearts. We're ashamed of the gospel, but not entirely. We play with the world, but it still feels wrong. We run away from Jesus, but we know that we shouldn't. And so we walk as secret Christians. Why that ambivalence? Why is Peter still here? Let me tell you why. Because Jesus, congregation of the Lord, Jesus is a captivating Savior. He's a lovely Savior. You cannot shake him out. We may run for a time, just like the disciples, or we may follow Jesus from the distance, just like Peter. But once we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, once we have seen the loveliness and the beauty of Jesus Christ, we cannot avoid feeling attracted to him, even if we are still running away for fear. But times of wandering away and times of distancing will soon become times of being drawn near unto God once again in Jesus Christ. And then even wanderer Peter and running away apostles will become 
the foundation of the Church of God in the New Testament. Wanderer Peter, running away apostles, the foundation of the Church. Think about that. And isn't that the same with us, congregation? Some of us, some of us maybe are able to look back in the past and remember and testify of those moments in which we were running away from Jesus. While others may have that experience still in the future. Yet one thing is very certain. Jesus Christ will never abandon his people. He never abandons his own. Whether they are in the distance or running away from him, he will call them back. He will call them back. As certain as he has called you back. As certain as he has called me back. And now, notice how this scene transitions into the secrecy of the chambers of the high priest's home. Listen to the, to the Bible. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Now we are given a privilege here, brothers and sisters, that the disciples didn't have at that time when Jesus was being arrested. Uh, we are allowed to peek into this scene, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, into the secret meeting of the high priest and the elders, into the personal agendas of the leaders of Jerusalem, of the Supreme Court of Jerusalem in those days, if you will. This is something that is God-given. And what is it that we discover here? It's not a surprise, is it? It's not that something that we didn't know before. This is a kangaroo court, after all. Matthew explains to us that the purpose of the meaning is so they can find something against Jesus. So you see, the verdict has already been given, but the evidence they need to find. And what is worse, this is a clown court. Do you see that? They have been receiving witness upon witness upon witness, and yet none of them agree with each other. And they need to, at least. It is a shame to the council of the leaders, really, because all of these witnesses that are coming point to the fact that Jesus Christ is innocent, that there is nothing against him. And isn't that an irony? We, uh, you and I know, we the readers know, that this is a false court, and they know it too. But even then, they feel like they need to act according to the procedures. What is the point? Why following the procedures when this is a false court? Well, the point is that they need to cover themselves, to appear righteous before men. Yet, here is the thing, and I don't want you to miss it. Here is the thing. They cannot cover from God. And that is a good thought to always have, congregation. God is the final and ultimate judge of humanity. Maybe today we witness or we suffer injustices. And maybe today some walk in this world thinking that they have deceived justice. They are walking free, thinking that they will never see justice or that they are justice. But the day is coming when the hearts of men will be open for everyone to see clearly what was in there. God, who is the final judge, will judge rightly. There are no injustices with him, and that is why we are to fear God and not men, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. Peer pressure always puts too big of an emphasis in men. But even if we try to please everyone, guess what? 
you will never please everyone. That is why we need to fix our attention in God, to try to please Him. When we seek to please God, we may have the world against us, but God is in our side, and eternity is our dwelling place. Learn to weight your priorities well, congregation. 80 or even 100 years is a short time to live being afraid of people, being afraid of man. And those years are nothing compared with eternity. Eternity. Learn to live well, obeying God and not your own sinful inclinations. Learn to obey God. Learn to fear Him and not man. See, however, how the irony in the text intensifies when we see verses 60 and 61. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, I don't know how long it passed until these two guys came forward, but I am sure you can sense the irony in, in this verse, verses, brothers and sisters. Just imagine for a second the scene that is going on here. The high priest with the elders around him, seated on his chair, chair in the middle of this gathering, with Jesus in front of them. And time after time, they have been hearing these guys talking against Jesus, but nothing so far. The high priest is even bored, starting to get tired, cheek on his, his hand on his cheek, uh, looking tired of the incompetency of everyone. Until, until... Yes, finally, at last, two witnesses that seem to be saying something coherent. Two people who are not useless. The witnesses do not entirely match what Jesus has said. But who cares? Who cares? This is still partially true, and that is enough. It's perfect. And with that, Jesus, the innocent one, becomes Jesus, the victim before the high priest. The leaders now have the perfect platform to throw their attacks to Jesus Christ. It won't hold much water, not for a long time at least, but who cares? It is enough for a time. So as you heard, congregation, there are accusations against the king. Mere distortions of his words, manipulations. But remember, Jesus is here precisely because he has a mission handed to him by the Father. And at the heart of that mission is the church, the people he will rescue through the suffering of the cross, through the injustices that he is suffering right now. Now, these accusations then lead us to the second part of the text, where we see the humiliation of the king. Now, here, what happens next? And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testified against you? But Jesus remained silent. Having heard the witnesses, the high priest takes a personal point of privilege. The high priest speaks to Jesus and takes the whole matters in his hand because this time he knows he has something against him. However, it is not the high priest and his role what shakes us, is it? It's actually the role of Jesus that shakes us. His silence is awkward. Let me call it for what it is because you know it, it's uncomfortable, it's awkward. Why is Jesus not defending himself? Despite the awkwardness of this situation, brothers and sisters, I want you to always remember 
that we need to strive to keep in mind the purposes of God in view and not our own perspectives. Jesus remains silent because he is obeying the Father, because he is fulfilling every righteousness in our place. And if we remember that, then we will see clearly that Jesus, he is in control of the situation from the beginning until the end. False accusations can speak about themselves. They are false. It's clear even for those guys. And these two witnesses, they just presented the opportunity right now to fulfill the Father's plan through the hands of evil men who are following their wicked hearts. Understand this, congregation of the Lord. The biggest judgment on earth that Jesus can utter against anyone is that he remains silent. Is to let the leaders of Israel to let go with their wickedness. And that works similarly even today. The biggest judgment of God against any nation, against any people, is for God to let them go with their depravity. To stop speaking against them. To do nothing against them. We somehow have come to think that God being silent is a good thing. But that is the most terrifying thing that exists. When God does not speak, we perish. When the church stops proclaiming the gospel, there is no hope. When the church loses its prophetic voice in the world, when we fail to decry evil for what it is, for fear of man, then we are seeing judgment from God on us. Notice that I say the prophetic voice of the church. That means that the church communicates the whole counsel of God. Not my opinion, not your opinions, not our preferences, not our, or our own culture, or the rights that we think we have. No congregation. The whole counsel of God. When we lose the counsel of God, when we fail to do that, when we prefer to shy away from scriptures, uh, what, what they command us to do, then we are seeing judgment upon us. Judgment. Now, notice how Caiaphas wants to force Jesus into confession. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, these words that he's uttering represent the highest, the most strong form of a vow, an oath that can be found in the scriptures. It's close to our modern, I swear by my mom or over my dead body that I'm telling you the truth. That's kind of what he's saying. And behind this oath, there is a trap. There are two questions that he's asking the people, uh, Jesus, excuse me, two questions that represent a cultural misreading of who Jesus Christ is. They go like this. Are you a rebel, Jesus? And are you a blasphemer, Jesus? Because if you are really the Christ, then why aren't the Romans under our feet right now? And then, if you are really God, show us. Are you not just a blasphemer? Because you certainly don't look like God to us right now. See, this is what happens when we impose our readings, our cultural understanding upon Jesus Christ. The Christ, brothers and sisters, should be understood in his own terms. 
and according to God's word, not on their own on, on, on their own or own on presuppositions. Something is happening to me this morning. <laughs> if we have to force the scriptures into what they want into what we want them to say, then we're committing an injustice against God's word. Time and again, scriptures spoke about the Messiah's suffering, about Jesus being handed over to sinners. And Jesus has reverberated those same scriptures to the disciples and to everyone who listened to him. He never spoke about triumph for Israel. He never spoke in nationalistic terms. He spoke about calling the people to himself, about making all things new, starting with our hearts and transforming people into his kingdom. He spoke about the kingdom of God who him uh, brought, to which no nation on earth is the equal. That's what he spoke about. And that is why Jesus answers this time, you have said so, but, and that is really important, but, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. See, these words that we just read are at the center of this passage and of this whole narrative, really. It is the self-revelation, the self-identification of Jesus Christ. Yes, he is the Christ, but not in the way Caiaphas understands him. You see, Jesus will not allow anyone to label him. He labels himself. He speaks in his own terms. And that is why he's speaking now, opening his mouth. He can be falsely accused, but he cannot be misunderstood or distorted. And the revelation of himself answers to the most important question of all. What do you think of the Christ? What do you think of the Christ, congregation of the Lord? Is he a person you use to satisfy your own dreams and use his name as an excuse for the things that you want to do? A convenient figure that is good to have as long as it represents everything that is Republican, Libertarian, Democrat, insert label here? Is Jesus a shibboleth word, helpful to identify who is on your side and who is not? Someone we pray to as long as, they, as things are bad. But when everything goes back to normal, then we don't pray to him anymore and we forget about him. Here is the confession about Jesus Christ uttered by himself congregation. Here is what you too are to confess about him. Not what you think, not what your feelings tell you, not what Christian tells you, not what the elders tell you, but what Jesus says about himself. And this is what he said about himself, that he is the Christ, that he is the promised one, the son of man that Daniel saw in his visions, bringing his kingdom that will extend throughout the earth, calling to himself peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Someone whose kingdom is now, who is ruling with power and glory, and that will come one day to judge the living and the dead and to ensue eternity. That is who Jesus is. The Christ has the power to do all of those things in himself. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. He can do it by himself. And what is more intimidating at this point for the, for the Sadducees and, and, and the leaders uh, is that the Christ will judge those guys. 
That is the shocking revelation of the Christ congregation. As he stands before the Sanhedrin, he stands as the Lamb of God, the suffering servant of the Lord who opens not his mouth in his defense, the one who willingly goes to the cross in order to obey the Father's will. And yet, at the same time, this affirmation of the Christ is also turning the tables on the Sanhedrin. They will stand before the Christ. They will be judged by him. They will see him as he is. And at that point, there is no turning back. There is no time for repentance. Who do you say the Christ is, congregation? He has to be understood under his own terms. And the denial to understand him as he is represents the biggest rebellion that we can have against him, to distort who he is, to misunderstand him. That is the biggest rebellion against him. In fact, that is what we see in verses 60, 65 and 66. He has uttered blasphemy, says the uh, high priest. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Now, do not be oblivious to this verses, congregation. It is the revelation of who Jesus Christ is that in the end has earned his, his condemnation, his death sentence. Christ is the one who came to save sinners. And yet that is what condemns him to death. Should we be surprised that that happens even today with the church? If this is the confession of the church that we uphold, then we shouldn't be surprised that the world, sin, and the devil hates the church. If he was despised, so will we will be as well. The disciple, after all, is no bigger than his master. Hear the closing of the text. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Can you find Jesus prophesying, congregation? We don't. The wheels of time are turning. The plan of the Father is still running. The Lamb of God is humiliated, smitten, struck by sinners, and his condemnation has been sealed. Now is the time for the power of darkness to rejoice for a time. This is the anticlimactic nature of the gospel story, that devils dressed as angels of lights are allowed to strike the Christ, mock him, abuse him, believing for a second that they have won. And he opens not his mouth in his defense, nor does he use his power in his favor. Rather, it may seem for a second that everything is lost that the hero of the story has fallen. But if we pay attention, we will see that all of that is just part of the Father's plan. Jesus, our hero, yes, he suffers, but he will be vindicated. He's silent, but he will speak again. He will die, but then he will rise on the third day in glory. That is the golden thread of the biggest story ever told, congregation. And so, what are we to do with this information? 
How are we to respond to the gospel? Let me tell you how. Our response should be to surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ once again. See Jesus for what he truly is. Trust in him. Come to him in faith once again. He died for you and he also rose again. So where he is, you may also be. And that, that has to be our conviction, brothers and sisters. That we don't follow a crazy guy. We follow the Messiah, the one who died for us, but he's alive. The one who is coming to judge every man. But on that day, we will see him as he is. Not with fear, but with joy. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you because, indeed, uh, you have saved us and you have called us to yourself in him. Thank you, Father, for that reality. Uh, thank you that we are not afraid of that day because we are in you. So we pray that you may help us to see you anew once again, that we may come to you once again to rest in you and to bring glory to your name. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.